Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's the evening of Thursday, November the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As we speak, to be precise, it is 4.15 in the afternoon, Irish time, and we continue to await announcements of the projected winners in the four states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, which are going to decide the winner of the Electoral College and therefore the presidency of the United States. Uh, It all looks a lot better for Joe Biden than it does for Donald Trump at the moment, Um, Um, But there is still an outside chance, I suppose, that Donald Trump might win it. If he does, I think it'll take some days or perhaps even weeks to arrive at that point. But in any case, I'm joined by Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole and by our public affairs editor, Simon Carswell. Simon was also our Washington correspondent from 2012 to 2016. And so he saw the last election up close and personal. You're both very welcome. Thanks, Hugh. Thanks, Hugh. Um, Finton, to you first. You wrote a big piece in today's uh, newspaper. There's a lot to chew on in it. Um, but you describe what has happened as a kind of a triumph for Trump. Yeah, you know, it, it's a kind of a triumph, of course. I mean, the, he's not going to win, uh, almost certainly. Uh, however, I mean, he's performed stunningly. Um, you know, it, it just, it, 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 that the first fact that has to be faced is that uh, you know, rumors of the death of Trumpism uh, have turned out to be greatly exaggerated. You know, he he's brought out uh, at least the vote that he brought out in twenty sixteen and and more. You know, it 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 seemed almost impossible for him to add votes um, because he wasn't obviously reaching out to anybody who didn't vote for him before. But he's 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 both intensified his base and extended it. And that's a very, very impressive and frightening performance. You know, it, 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 what it means, I, I think the phrase that I, I used in the piece was that Trumpism is not a wave because waves recede. You know, it's, it's more like a lava flow, which has now um, petrified and solidified on the American political and indeed cultural landscape. You know, it's, it's, it's now there. So the first thing is that there's not going to be any post-mortem on the Republican side, because there is no Republican side. There's the, it's, it's Trump's party now completely. It's his base, they're his voters. Their, their loyalty to him is, is almost absolute. Um, and, you know, that, that is, um, if you just looked at it purely as a political achievement and left at, at the sort of moral dimension, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an extraordinary achievement by, by Trump. I think things worked in his favor um, in in the sort of bizarre, you know, mirror world that we're in. Coronavirus worked in his favor, for example. You know, which, which you would think, come on, that you know, it's probably close to a quarter of a million people dead. Many of them because of his malign incompetence, and yet this worked in his favor. How how, how could that be? 
you know, and it, it worked in his favor because uh, his own death and resurrection, you know, played out really well with with his base. You know, it energized them. It said, "This man is immortal. He's unbeatable. He's indefatigable. You know, there's nothing can take him down." He's it, it actually enhanced his hero status, but also just in in practical terms, um, Biden's responsible decision to really curtail rallies and but also what we don't see which is the knocking on doors you know the, the physical campaigning in communities that stuff was really cut back on by the democrats and shamelessness and recklessness and not caring if people die turned out to be a great asset for trump because he could hold the rallies which really did work you know they, they showed his vigor his energy they, you know they really electrified his base but also, from what we've heard, you know, the, the on-the-ground campaigning by, by the Republicans, you know, the knocking on doors, the getting out the vote stuff, uh, was very, very effective. So it just shows us yet again that sort of the, the, the rules, the, the things you think are pretty obvious, you know, but the, the obvious effect between cause and effect, it doesn't work in this, in this sort of uh, strange parallel universe of Trumpism. Um. Simon, I want I want to talk about the Democratic Party in a little while, but first of all, I mean, you were there, as I said, in, in, in 2016, and I think a lot of people, probably both on the right and the left of the political spectrum, at that point when Trump was elected, and indeed perhaps for much of his presidency, saw it as a kind of a, a black swan event, a concatenation of unusual circumstances, which led to this remarkable, unprecedented kind of a figure uh, assuming the job. And within that assumption, there's always a presumption of a reversion to the mean of some sort. And that was what was expected, I think, in a lot of quarters in 2020. But as Finton says, says that perhaps the main lesson of what's happened this week is that that was a, a, the wrong way to understand what Trump and Trumpism are. I think that's right. I, I mean, looking at this election, I'm surprised that people are surprised that Trump was entranced in a Biden landslide. I think that certainly what I saw in the 18 months that I covered Trump campaigning for the presidency in 2015 and 2016, I saw an energy and electricity that he generated amongst voters that I didn't think this is potentially a once-off. Where I did think that he's going to struggle to be re-elected was in his capacity to govern. I thought that that would really come into question because he just didn't have the capacity to govern. But what exists now and what this election has shown, and he's got, he's added 5 million more votes than he got in 2016. It's shown that he appeals to a certain type of voter in the United States um, and that he has fired up uh, a section of the American electorate. Uh, and many people who haven't voted before um, he's fired those up and he's kept them and retained them. And as Finton said, he has added to his base. I think one of the one of the things that surprised me on the night, um, one of the early indicators was um, uh, in the exit polls, people were asked what they think was the most important issue for them. And 34% said the economy. And I was surprised that coronavirus was only 18%. And I think that was the initial indication to me that this is going to be a very close election. This is not a Biden landslide. This is not um, a very negative vote in a referendum on, on Donald Trump. Um, and I think that if, I would go as far as to say, if the, if the coronavirus pandemic hadn't happened, there is a possibility that we would be looking, and it's looking like a, a Biden presidency for the next four years. But I think if the pandemic hadn't happened, there's quite a strong chance that we would see another four years of Donald Trump. 
Yeah, Fintan, there are there are a lot of questions about the polls um, and how they differed from the um, from the result. Now, not all the numbers are in, and sometimes some of those numbers can ameliorate when you actually see the when you actually see the the final figures. But I think it's pretty clear that the polls were very bad again in a number of key states, those blue wall states again, in particular in the in the in the upper Midwest. But the exit poll, which uh, which Simon refers to, is very interesting because the polls, the pre-election polls for the last several months seemed to show that the majority of American voters thought that the pandemic was the most important issue, number one, and that Trump's handling of the pandemic had been terrible, number two. Now, that's not what the exit polls showed. And it does raise this question because those polls fed into a narrative uh, in terms of media coverage throughout the election, that that was what it was going to be about. And then we find out in these exit polls, if they're to be believed, that that wasn't the case at all. Yeah, uh, you know, it, the the the, the uh, like like Simon, I, I I do think the exit poll was really kind of a like a, a slap in the face because it it showed um, this extraordinary thing that you know in the middle of a pandemic that has killed more people than all the wars the United States has, has on on their side uh, has has fought since the Civil War. You know, you can you can put them all together, and more people have died this year from the coronavirus. More Americans. Um, and yet it's it's relatively low down people's order of priorities in terms of what's the most important thing in the election. And what that shows is that Trump, you know, we, we look in from the outside and, and we think, I, I, I mean, surely it's over. You know, when, when a president starts telling people to inject bleach and disinfectant, you know, or shine lights into their bodies to kill the virus, when he keeps, you know, selling quack cures and, you know, all this stuff, that, that, that surely people are going to say, oh, you know, this is this is really scary. I, I just I don't want a president who does that. And of course, there are a lot of people who who feel that way. But I think what this really showed was the absolute success of the low information environment that that Trump has created for his supporters. You know that that uh, there are there is this closed loop in which what's happening with the with 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 the virus is what Trump tells you is happening and what's amplified by Rupert Murdoch and Fox News and all that, you know, and which is that, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad thing, but we're beating it. Uh, it, it really just shows our, our resilience. And of course, this, you, I, I think you cannot overestimate the extent to which Trump's own contraction of coronavirus helps him, you know, because it, it sort of embodies that narrative for his support base. It actually shows... It shows America, i.e., Donald Trump, beating the virus, you know, <laughs> and it 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 sort of is um it it's a sort of parody of the Christian narrative, you know, death and resurrection. He was three days in um in in the tomb of Walter Reed, and then sort of arose and and appeared to many. Uh, but also the comeback, you know, the, the comeback is such a huge American myth, you know, the comeback kid. So he's both he's both Christ and the comeback kid, and it plays into this thing of. Of 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 you know Trump is there forever in a way, um, and uh, it, it sort of get, it probably gave a lot of his his supporters a feeling of that he they could kind of you know pitch hitch a kind of ride on his immunity. You know, me kept saying I'm immune now, and it was almost like I, I am I am the vaccine. You know, I have cured this thing, and you know we, we may look in from the outside and say that's completely crazy, but. And Simon knows this better than I do from 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 covering Trump. You know, there's a there's a very very substantial number of Americans who who buy that kind of um, mythological information. You know, in, information which is not 
about science or rationality, but is actually emotional and is driven by a narrative which is sort of already there. And, and Trump played it brilliantly. And you have to say, by the way, like just he was astonishing. I mean, what, what, what he was doing in those last couple of days for someone of his age who has been so ill, you know, to be conducting four or five rallies a day and, you know, they're, they're, they're not short. Like, these are, these are big performances, you know. Uh, his, his own resilience uh, was astonishing and it, it embodied for millions and millions of people, you know, an, an idea of American resilience, um, which, which was actually very effective. I mean, another way of looking at that, Simon, is to say that the, the um, polarisation between the two parties in the United States is so extreme that every issue um, gets um, distilled down to that at some point or another. So that, I mean, I can't think of another country where COVID-19 and the response to it is so, such, a, such a party political issue with such different views on either sides of the of the core political divide, and that therefore it was about political identification, the question of how how seriously personally or politically one was going to one was going to take COVID nineteen. And isn't the reality that, albeit the Democrats will again for the third time this century win the popular vote and they'll just about get the Electoral College this time, um, that they are a majority just about of the voting population. The United States is still a country that has a huge conservative movement, a huge conservative philosophy, and that that, um, as represented by the Republican Party, is a really significant part of the United States that that maybe we don't understand it because it runs much more, that it's a kind of conservatism that runs in deep and to us perhaps somewhat unintelligible ways at times, but it's always there. It's uh, it's at its strongest in the parts of America we see the least of and we have the least contact with, and perhaps parts of America that blew America doesn't really understand very well either. I think that's a really good point. And I, I spent the last few days ringing contacts of mine that I got to know very well in the four years I was in the United States. And I spoke to a Irish person who's been living on and off in the United States for a long, long time on the coasts. They've never lived inside in the so-called flyover states. And he admitted to me today, I said, I just think this election has shown is that I, I actually thought I knew America and I don't. And I thought it was a really good way of putting it. And, and it was said to me, two, two pieces of advice that I got when I became US correspondent was get out of the bubble, get out of the Washington Beltway because it's not America. And second piece of advice was from another Irish person saying, your job as a correspondent in the US is to write in such a way that Irish people at home won't be shocked if a Republican wins or does well. And I thought it was a really good way of, of trying to understand what goes on in middle America, in those flyover states, uh, those swing states that determined the election. And again, I go back to the point I made, the surprise I have at the surprise of people that they were, that, that they were expecting this Biden landslide, that, that, that Trump would be chased out of office. I mean, that just did not happen in this election. And I think that many Democrats themselves don't understand um, some of the constituents that, that, that picked the president and don't understand the currents running politically in some of these swing states. One of the things that I did when I was covering the 26th campaign was I drove from Philadelphia to Columbus, Ohio, and I covered that, that kind of track of voters 
which really will determine the 2016 election and are playing a key role in determining this election. And what I was struck by was the number of yard signs. I mean, you talk about polls. The yard sign poll, I think, is a fantastic poll to take. And the MAGA hat poll was another one um, to take in 2016. They were everywhere. The hats were everywhere. The, the, the homemade Trump signs were everywhere. The Clinton signs were few and far between. They were campaign signs. People didn't make their own ones for, for the most part. And it struck me that, that this was, there was this energy, there was this electricity behind Trump's campaign in 2016. And by flouting the, the public guidelines in this pandemic, by holding rallies, he again captured that as I'm the, I'm the electricity candidate here. I'm the exciting candidate. I'm the one that you should be backing. And again, presenting Joe Biden as Sleepy Joe with this kind of slightly laid back, um, maybe presumed or assumed candidate uh, that he would take things for granted. And I do think that the Democrats this time fell into that trap of taking some of their, some of the things for granted, expecting to run up the vote amongst Latinos, which they didn't do, um, and expecting that, well, the coronavirus is clearly going to turn off a lot of older voters, and that didn't happen in this election. Trump ran up um, um, more support amongst the over 65s, and everyone uh, seems to have gone to the villages in terms of reporters um, in Florida to look at that retirement community and say, well, we'll get a good indication here. And they actually... uh, roughly came in around the same support uh, that they gave Trump in 2016. So I think he he ran an impressive campaign again this time. Uh, And looking at the polls, I think the polls, you can kind of read in what you want into them in the run-up to the election. The the polls are playing out as they were in the run-up to the election. Um, They they were close in all the swing states. Most of them were within within the margin of error. So I think that people can reflect on the polls, uh, but they were actually, they've come out quite accurate actually. In, in, in some respects, I think I, I think that's true. Although in other respects, it's not. But Finton, um, Simon mentioned the Latinos, and and going back again to some of those exit polls and some of the details that we've seen over the last couple of days, I think they reveal that there's a greater complexity than people outside the United States sometimes ascribe to 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 what's going on, and they see Trumpism as purely an expression of you know of white resentment. Um, The Latino vote for Trump went up quite significantly in some places, perhaps not so surprisingly among, you know, Cuban communities in in Miami-Dade, but perhaps more so with almost 40% of Hispanics in some parts of Texas voting uh, voting for Trump, an increase, albeit from a very low base, of the black vote for Trump, particularly black men. I was very taken by one number I saw that uh, black men in the upper Midwest, 30% of them voted for Trump. That kind of goes against the grain of what we think about, about what a classic Trump supporter is. And it also raises some big questions for the Democratic Party in terms of its expectations of what its own coalition is. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, you, you know, uh, if you take the the Latinx vote, you know, that's is there such a thing? You know, I think this is part of the problem is like not questioning the categories. Uh, you know, d- 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 is a somebody from a Cuban background in Florida, you know, the same as somebody who's who's working um, as a chambermaid in Las Vegas? You know. <laughs> Well, no, you know, no more than a white person who's working as a chambermaid in, 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 in Nevada is the same as a banker on Wall Street. You know, so class matters, gender matters, age matters. You know, there's a huge range of things that matter. 
Um, and uh, so the the laziness, I think, of, of just kind of lumping people and assuming that that's the category they're in, they're going to stay there, and this is how they're going to vote, uh, certainly has, surely has been shattered by this. So we have to bear in mind that as well as the, um, you know, the, the influx of, of, of new Hispanic voters for Trump, I mean, you also have, of course, places like Arizona with very significant, um, you know, populations of people whose origins are, are in South America, you know, and, and, and Spanish speakers and, you know, who, who are also having a huge impact on the election in Biden's favor. So I think the, the, the real point here, I think the long-term point is that the Democrats have been assuming that demography is destiny, right? They've been saying, you know, Trumpism and indeed almost like the right is a a temporary phenomenon because all the demographic trends are in our favor. And I think this election has shattered that, you know, that, that sort of complacency about thinking, well, if there are more black people, obviously Democrats are going to be in power. If there are more Hispanic people, obviously Democrats are going to be in power. Um, Trump has shown, you know, that, that it's, a, it's, 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 it's the Jeff Flake, the former Republican senator who became one of his critics, said that uh, Trumpism is a, a demographic cul-de-sac. It's not a cul-de-sac. It's it's a pretty open highway, you know. And and I think that's where really fundamental rethinking is going to have to be done by the Democrats. That that's a really interesting point, I think, Simon, because it is so baked into the current thinking of the Democratic Party, and arguably leads to a certain kind of intellectual and strategic laziness. If you think you're going to sit there and dem- uh, demography is going to is going to do the job for you, I saw an interesting comparison today made by uh, uh, um, somebody with. Richard Nixon's strategy in the late 1960s and early 1970s when he reached out to what at the time were called white ethnics who were immigrant groups, possibly including Irish people, but certainly from Eastern European and Polish backgrounds who had always voted Democrat, but were, uh, you know, blue collar workers, small business people, that kind of thing. And that was a huge part of the very successful coalition he built. And drawing exactly that comparison with what's maybe starting to happen with some people from uh, Latin American background. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're this one big homogenous group. And some of the figures that we've seen in the voting patterns in this election have been quite astonishing when it comes to the Latina vote. So, for example, like in Texas, um, 41 to 47 percent of Hispanic voters back Trump. Um, and some of these in some of these kind of heavily Latino border counties in the Rio Grande Valley, which seems like bizarre that 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 they would vote that way. And in Florida, winning 45% of the vote, which is an 11 point improvement on his 2016 performance. I think the failure of the Democrats in certain states, particularly Florida and in, in particular in Miami-Dade, and I know there's a lot of Cuban-Americans in, in that county and, and Cuban-Americans tend to vote Republican because they're a different type of Latina voter. But even still, there are a lot of other Latina voters in Miami-Dade and um, there was a difference of about 200,000 votes between what Hillary Clinton achieved in 2016 and what Joe Biden achieved in 2020 in this election. And I think the problem the Democrats have there is, is again, taking it for granted is that, you know, assuming that if if demographics are going one way, then when they're going to come into us and into our party, but you can't assume that. Um, Then again, if you look at what's happening in Maricopa County, which is the biggest county in Arizona, which is the one that may bring uh, Biden over the line uh, if he wins and flips a Democrat for the first time in a long time, um, 
there's a lot of Latina voters there uh, who seem to be supporting uh, Biden. So I think it's 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 a difficult one to call, but I think the lesson to be learned for the Democrats here is you got to go out and you got to tell these people why they have to vote Democratic. I think the bigger problem for the Democratic Party is actually how do they talk to these white voters that they used to have in large numbers in Appalachia, in the Rust Belt and industrial areas. Those Democrats who became Reagan Democrats and then became Trump Democrats in the last election is, is how did the Democrats win them back? That's a far bigger issue, I think, rather than just relying on demo demographic changes over the coming decades to, to ensure that you're elected uh, to the presidency. Yeah, I mean, Finton, um, about the Democrats, I mean, this is, this is a phenomenon we've seen with other centre-left parties around the world, that they lose the support of their traditional working class base, which used to be rooted in trade unions and other organisations, um, that they move up the social ladder and become more middle class parties and that the party of the centre right or perhaps further right becomes the new party of the middle class. The Democrats are now, if predictions are correct, the likelihood is we're going to have a, they're going to have a 78 year old president um, with a Republican majority Senate, so hamstrung in the way that the American system delivers that, almost certainly a one-term president. They'll, it seems to me very, very soon they're going to start looking towards what they're going to do in 2024. And they face some really big questions. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that's going to be crucial is because it looks like the Republicans holding on to the Senate, although there's still a kind of a, maybe it's a mirage, but those two Senate seats in Georgia may still be up for grabs uh, in in um, in January in, in runoffs, and of course that would give, assuming Biden is president, and and uh, Kamala Harris is the you know would 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 be the president of the Senate and hold the the, the, the uh, swing vote there. Um, so, you, but but you have to assume it's going to be a, a Republican Senate, which means that the Democrats can't do what should be the most urgent thing for them to be doing, which is reforming the voting system. You know, bringing in statehood for for Puerto Rico and Washington D.C. You know, setting up a commission to look at the electoral college. You know, strengthening voting rights. Um, uh, 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 maybe appointing some new Supreme Court judges. You know, all of that stuff they can't do, and that's a that's a real, real huge problem for them because it means that they have to fight on this on this this completely distorted playing field you know um uh, you know they 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 can keep winning majorities i mean the senate is grotesque you know it's just absolutely grotesque that 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 you know a state with a million people has 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 the same representation as california so what can they do well you know uh, and this this addresses the question about about working class voters, and I wouldn't even say white working class voters because it's 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 true as well of all those other kind of <laughs> working class voters that they've taken for granted, which is an economic agenda, you know. And 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 here's the thing, right? Look at the ballot propositions in California, right? The most liberal democratic state in in in, in the United States. Two propositions, right? One, driven by, you know, by Uber, by Lyft, by Deliveroo, by all of those companies, had a ballot proposition to say that uh, laws that define their workers as workers are illegal and that their workers are to be treated as private contractors, which means effectively, of course, that they have no rights. It passed in California, right? Um, Another ballot proposition, just a simple one, you know, but to raise money from property taxes to put into the education system was defeated, right? 
Why? Because there's an awful lot of the Democrats' base, you know, the, the sort of Silicon Valley base or whatever, you know, which is actually, it's liberal in, in Irish terms almost on, on social issues, uh, or we call social issues, but actually, you know, doesn't want to be taxed, do, do, doesn't want workers' rights, has, is hostile to trade unions, you know. And, and Biden, the one thing Biden has going for him is that he is an old Irish Paul from the 1960s and he actually does understand things like trade unions and he does understand things like, you know, the, the economic base of working people's lives. So they have to hit the ground running, assuming that it is a Biden presidency, you know, with health care, you know, with, with, with his, his proposition, which I think is very smart, you know, to, to just expand Medicare, you know, start Medicare at 60 or 65, uh, but also with, with, you know, real programs about workers' rights, about, about pensions, about, you know, real bread and butter stuff. This is going to be won and lost for the Democrats on whether or not they can retake an agenda in the first two years of a Biden presidency, which is an agenda of um, social justice and in, in a real tangible way. Remember, Biden, you know, did win Wisconsin. He 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 did win Michigan. He has retaken some of that blue wall. I mean, not Ohio. So it's you know, so it's very complex. But the the the, the some of the blue collar Trump voters have swung back towards Biden. Um, there may be relatively small numbers, but it shows it's possible, right? It shows that this is not that that kind of vote is not necessarily entirely set in stone and is still there to be fought for. And the Democrats have to be seen as the party that fights for those people. Simon, you spent four years in Capitol Hill watching Barack Obama deal with or fail to deal with a Republican-controlled Senate. What chance that uh, Joe Biden can do anything successful in, in that regard? Uh, very little. Um, I think they'll throw all sorts of obstacles up um, and anything significant that he tries to do. I think there's a couple of symbolic things he can do very early on, much like Donald Trump did in the first few months of his presidency with executive orders. And I think that kind of sets a very clear policy statement and he can do a lot of things on that front. Um, so I think you could see you could see the White House making some significant statements in the first few months of, of a Biden presidency um, that would show that we're very different from the last guy. Um, I think that what the party needs to do is kind of take a long, hard look at itself um, and to understand better how to appeal to some of those constituents. Um, the Particularly some of the working class vote, I think that one of the things, one of the signs that, that Trump was successful is, is that um, Biden campaigned on his own version of an American first policy with the Made in America policy where uh, Biden's uh, pitch was to create this policy that would revive manufacturing in the US by threatening to punish companies that shift jobs overseas and um, that reward businesses that create employment at home. So I think you will actually see aspects of the um, trade policies that Donald Trump pursued, not nearly as aggressive, obviously, internationally, but you will see aspects of the homegrown economy uh, and changes that need to be made there. I also think that there's a very limited amount of time for the Democrats. It, it is likely to be a, a one-term uh, presidency, for, certainly for, for, for Joe Biden. But um, I think that what you're going to have now is a very dangerous figure in Donald Trump as an opponent. Um, I was just off a call there. Mick Mulvaney was giving a webinar. Um, Mick Mulvaney is Donald Trump's former acting chief of staff and current special envoy to Northern Ireland. And Mulvaney said that he expects 
Donald Trump will be on the shortlist to run for president in 2024 again. And I think that that creates uh, the presence uh, of a very um, very ominous presence for Joe Biden because he will create a very powerful opponent in uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't like to lose. I think um, if he's been nasty the last four, four years, I don't think he's seen anything yet in terms of what he can be when he's on the sidelines, uh, particularly after suffering this, this humiliating defeat in the election. So I think that's going to add another difficulty for the Democratic Party and for a Biden White House in trying to get things over the line in a divided Congress. The, the reason why we talk so much about the United States, Finton, is not just because it's the biggest economy in the world and not just because we have very close cultural and economic ties with it, um, but also because it sort of leads the world. It has been the world's leader since the end of the Second World War, at least. And what it does has huge impact beyond its borders. Now, we can expect a change in policy I think in all our views, probably for the better in terms of international relations from a from a Biden administration and the presidency has greater powers in that area than uh, than in others. But Trump is still there. The result is the way it is. What impact do you think what has happened this week will have on political currents um, the the position of the the, the rising far right around the world will it will it give encouragement to other authoritarians will it have a negative impact on any sort or is it a sort of a score draw i i think the score draw is is probably the best analogy um you know well, I suppose, you know we've been talking about the democrats and the failure of the democrats and trump's success so it is just right important to say that uh if as seems very very likely donald trump is defeated that, that is a huge thing in itself, right? Um, like Simon's absolutely right that Trump and Trumpism are going to remain uh, a, a huge factor in American politics. They're going to become, if anything, even more malign. Um, the violent fringes are, are going to be encouraged. Remember, we're, we're, you know, we, we haven't seen how this is all going to play out. So even assuming that Biden is declared the winner of the electoral of, of you know of the election. Between now and the meeting at the Electoral College, um, you know, there's going to be the lawsuits and, you know, which would be the polite side of it, but there's also going to be a lot of stuff on the streets. Um, so uh, the what, what we have, I think, what, what's going to really emerge from this is that uh, what this has consolidated and what the next period will consolidate is the idea of the so-called Republican Party, which this no longer is, the Trump Party, as a far-right party. Right. So, 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 so what you're what you're now going to have out of office is the largest far right party in the world, right? um, and it's a, it's a very powerful force. It's going to be radicalized even further. Um, the the rhetoric from Trump is all going to be about the stab in the back, the stealing of the election, the conspiracy to do us down. We you know we recognize this kind of stuff. It ha- it has a sort of historical precedence, which is which is not pleasant. Uh, so and, and clearly that's going to be internationalized, right? That's going to be it's going to feed into the conspiracy theorists, the you know the 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 anti anti democratic forces around the world. You know, um, uh, you know the, the it doesn't they're not ashamed, you know, to to use democratic arguments, you know, to 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 put forward anti democratic. Um, uh, uh, policies and, and positions and those positions will be that you know that 
liberal democracy no longer works because it's it's so corrupt it's been it's stolen and the only option really is the strong man so that that stuff is not going to go away unfortunately um however it's not going to be the same with trump out of out of office you know um remember trump becomes uh, he becomes extremely vulnerable to um to to criminal prosecution um, we 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 think the Southern District of New York has has you know a large number of cases ready to go once once Trump is out of office. Um, we also know that his ability to control the media agenda, you know, to 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 have this kind of you know the the president has always has always itself been called the bully pulpit, you know, and and Trump has used the bully pulpit. Um, to do more bullying and to be louder and more aggressive than anybody in 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 the history of the office, that's gone. It doesn't mean his access to media or his Twitter accounts or all that stuff is gone, but it's not the same when you're not president. So, I think I think tr- Trumpism, although it's had a very strong election, it's also lost that bit of power. And one of the most interesting moments might be Vanity Fair is reporting that last uh, on, the, on the night of the election. After remember, it was Fox News that called Arizona for 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 Biden, probably prematurely. I mean, the, the ironically, you know, Trump had actually reason to be angry in this case. Um, but Vanity Fair certainly is reporting that that Trump phones Rupert Murdoch and started screaming down the phone, uh, and you know, telling Murdoch to order Fox News to rescind the uh, calling of Arizona for for Biden, and Murdoch put down the phone. Right. This is the thing you have to remember that once the whiff of you know power, <laughs> you know leaving the room starts to work, uh, a lot of the, sycoph- the the sycophants, a lot of the the sort of the stuff around Trump that sort of tolerates them, uh, that's that 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 supports them, that pushes them forward. Some of that might begin to, to you know to hedge its bets. Um, so it's it, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Uh, but unfortunately, those of us who thought that you know maybe Trump's defeat might be a turning point in the wider defeat of this sort of uh, larger far right nationalist um, moment, uh, I, I think I have to admit that we <laughs> we've been disappointed. Yeah, and just a very last thought on that, Simon, if you, if, if you wouldn't mind, because it seems to me that it's very difficult to know what will happen, both both with the Democrats, as we mentioned, but also with the Republican Party. I'm not entirely convinced that it's the party of Trump, despite this kind of Pyrrhic victory or, or, or whatever it is. You could make an alternative argument that it's the party of Mitch McConnell and that everything or many of the things that happened are a result of his kind of brilliant um, Machiavellian tactics um, and that he's achieved pretty much everything that he wanted to achieve and might perhaps be only too happy to see Trump fade into the background or go off and set up a TV station or whatever else, whatever the hell else it might be. So very difficult to know how the dynamics of that are going to play, I think, over the next two to four years. Yeah, but it's it's also a case of, you know, the many Republicans would like to see a beaten Trump fade into the background, but it's more, I think it's going to be, have to be more proactive than that, is how do the Republicans push Trump into the background? And the problem that many Republicans have, and we started spoke earlier about just how partisan um, politics has become, the, the Republican Party has shifted so far to the right that Trump can activate all sorts of forces against particular Republicans um, in primary races. So he, you, you can have a case where you could get a Trump-type candidate coming out in particular 
primaries in Republican areas uh, that could challenge the more establishment Republicans. So I think they have a job on their hands trying to push Trump into the shadows. I think on the other side, I think the Democrats have to find something of a super sub as well for the next election cycle. Um, I think what this election has shown to me is in my lifetime that, you know, the Democrats can really only be guaranteed winning the presidency in such at such large numbers when they have an exceptional candidate in someone like Bill Clinton or, or Barack Obama, whereas the Republicans can really only win with they can win with flawed characters and flawed candidates. So, I think the Democrat Democratic Party also has to look to the future and see well who's next in line, who who are our pipeline of future leaders. Um, but on your point on the Republican Party, absolutely, I think the autopsy that was done after the twenty twelve defeat, uh, Mitt Romney's defeat, which looked at we have to appeal more to more demographic groups. I think there's going to be a very similar autopsy carried out at this time um, by the Republican Party and by the established party, but probably a bigger job on their hands trying to uh, you know, erase Trump from the party. I think it's going to be a very, very difficult thing to do because Trump has opened up some boxes in the last four years that will be very hard to close. We'll leave it there. Thanks, as always, to Simon and Finton for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. And if you want to get in touch, you can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We're always delighted to hear from you. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 